Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. It has been a day that defies comparison, although, frankly, many days lately seem to defy comparison. We learned that the president's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, is under criminal investigation, has been for months. What's more, according to The New York Times' as Maggie Haberman, presidential advisor is considered a bigger threat to Mr. Trump than special counsel Mueller's probe. We learned that Cohen arranged another hush money payout, this one just last year, to a Playboy model who became pregnant during an affair with a big Republican donor. We also saw Michael Cohen's attorney, that's the president's lawyer's lawyer, in case you're keeping track, try to block the Justice Department from reading documents seized in raids on Cohen on Monday, documents involving the president. Then we learned that the president phoned his embattled lawyer today, even as his press secretary failed to answer the simplest question about whether Michael Cohen still is the president's lawyer. She says she didn't know. Is the president uh, still associated with Michael Cohen? Is he uh, continue to consider Michael Cohen someone he holds in confidence? Uh, I know that the president has worked with him as a personal attorney. Beyond that, I, I, I don't have anything else to add about the about relationship. So there's that tonight, and there's James uh, James Comey and his book, and all of it has left the president, and I quote, pissed, flailing, and upset. That's what a source close to the president told CNN's Gloria Borger. His anger says her source is, and I'm quoting here again, beyond what anyone can imagine. Another said he is currently in lash-out mode, which he did today at the fired FBI director, and later at Andrew McCabe, the deputy director, who was also let go. James Comey is a proven leaker and liar, the president tweeted. Virtually everyone in Washington thought he should be fired for the terrible job he did until he was, in fact, fired. He leaked classified information for which he should be prosecuted. He lied to Congress under oath. The president goes on to say he is a weak and untruthful slime ball who was, as time has proven, a terrible director of the FBI. His handling of the crooked Hillary Clinton case and the events surrounding it will go down as one of the worst botched jobs of history It was my great honor to fire James Comey. Then later, the president of the United States tweeted this about Andrew McCabe after CNN obtained the Justice Department Inspector General's report criticizing McCabe for a lack of candor concerning the Clinton Foundation investigation, which is a serious offense at the FBI. Here was the president's take, quote, DOJ just issued the McCabe report, which is a total disaster. He lied, lied, lied. McCabe was totally controlled by Comey. McCabe is Comey. No collusion. All made up by this den of thieves and lowlifes. Thieves and lowlifes. Now, keeping him honest, we don't know if he was talking about McCabe and Comey, who aren't even actually involved in the probe. Robert Mueller, of course, who is. Rod Rosenstein, who oversees it. His attorney general, who recused himself. Are they all thieves and lowlifes? We don't know. No answer on that yet today. We only know the White House denies that the contemptuous things the president says about the people he himself appointed do not reflect any contempt for the justice system itself. So how would you characterize the president's attitude towards the rule of law and things that he said publicly about many of his top 
federal law enforcement officials. The president has a great deal of respect for the rule of law, uh, but the president does not have a lot of respect for people whose sole job is to carry out the law, and they leak classified information, and they lie to the American public about it. Charlie? Speakers, it's his own attorney you, general, it's his own deputy attorney general, it's special counsel, it's the FBI, it's judges who make decisions that he doesn't like. I'm sorry, I'm not... What was Those the are the whole list of the sort of federal law enforcement officials that he has undermined. It's not just people who have proven to leak information. The president hasn't undermined them uh, in any capacity just because he calls out things that uh, he finds to be problematic or concerning. I think that he should do that. The president has not undermined any of them just because he calls things out. So by that logic, back during the campaign, Mr. Trump was showing a great deal of respect when he said this. Let me just tell you. I have had horrible rulings. I've been treated very unfairly by this judge. Now, this judge is of Mexican heritage. I'm building a wall, okay? I'm building a wall. That, does that sound to you like a great deal of respect? How about when he calls his own attorney general weak on Twitter or slams him down in public? I am disappointed in the attorney general. Uh, he should not have recused himself almost immediately after he took office. And if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me prior to taking office, and I would have quite simply picked somebody else. So does that show a great deal of respect toward the rule of law? How about tweeting that the FBI's reputation is, quote, in tatters, worst in history? Is it respectful of the rule of law to pardon Scooter Libby like he did today and before him, Joe Arpaio, without following the normal Justice Department procedures for doing so? The president's words and actions speak to all of it. Respect for the rule of law or not, the day ends with so much we simply did not know about the case against Michael Cohen, so much of it coming out in connection with court proceedings in lower Manhattan today. Senator Shimon Prokupes joins us now with more. So Cohen's attorney attempting to block the Justice Department from reading the documents they seized during the raids. What's the latest on that? Yeah, that's right, uh, Anderson. Uh, we had come to court here this morning. I've been here all morning uh, and all day now uh, expecting uh, to hear arguments as to why the government, uh, why the FBI agents and the U.S. attorneys should not view some of these materials that they obtained in these search warrants. Uh, Michael Cohn's attorneys arguing uh, that some of this is privileged information, that this is information that he has uh, through his work with certain clients, with other attorneys, and the judge really putting pressure on his attorneys all day, asking her, who are these clients? Uh, who are these attorneys who you're claiming uh, you have privilege with, these clients who you have privilege with? And his attorneys so far, up until the end of the day, were not able to provide any of that information. And then earlier this morning, while we we're in court, we learned that the president, the Donald Trump's attorneys, newly hired attorneys uh, that he just brought into the case on Wednesday, were also intervening in the case. Uh, and they they plan to argue that the communications that the FBI may have between the president and Michael Cohen should not be viewed by the FBI, by the U.S. government, uh, because it is privileged information. And the only person who can waive that privilege is the president. So I understand the court filing uh, helped uh, today helps to explain the urgency of the raids in the government's opinion. Yeah, some significant information, uh, Anderson, in these court filings. Uh, they were released late this afternoon. Uh, and what it really showed is what the government had been doing as it relates to Michael Cohn. Uh, it reveals that a grand jury has been impaneled 
here in Manhattan uh, that is hearing evidence. Uh, they also revealed that they had concerns. They would not say what those concerns were. Uh, they would not go into detail about it. In fact, in the court documents, they redacted it. But they said that they had information indicating that had they not done these search warrants, that information, the information that they were seeking would have been deleted, destroyed. And so therefore, they needed to move in uh, and do these search warrants at his home, uh, his, uh, at his home, his hotel, uh, his office. Also, they searched a, uh, a bank boxes, his electronic devices, uh, which, as we've been reporting, may have some recordings on them. Uh, all of that, they say, could have been destroyed and therefore they needed to be moved. They needed to move quickly in this case. Is Michael Cohen being cooperative? Now, the, uh, Anderson, the court documents here uh, say that he has not been cooperative, cooperative. In fact, they use that as one of the reasons why they needed to move so quickly in this case. Uh, there's a part in the court documents that says uh, the special counsel had Robert Mueller's team had made some requests of him for communications regarding the Trump organization. And though Michael Cohen has given some indication that he was trying to be cooperative, they say he wasn't and therefore did not provide the information that the special counsel uh, needed, Anderson. And the judge ordered Michael Cohen to appear in court in Monday uh, this afternoon. And we're showing the video right now. He was basically hanging out with, I guess, his friends in a sidewalk uh, cafe, I think, outside a hotel. It looked like some of them are smoking cigars. Yeah, and this is pretty remarkable. Look, I had been I'd spent a day in court here. The judge was extremely frustrated with the attorneys, Michael Cohn's attorneys, uh, in that she felt that he was not either cooperating with them or was not providing them enough information. The key here is that the judge needs to know who he claims his clients are. And then you go and you see this video when the judge kept all day adjourning. She gave them hours and hours of adjournments to get their act together, this, his attorneys, Michael Cohn's attorneys. Uh, and at the end of the day, she was extremely frustrated to the point where she ordered, she had ordered Michael Cohn to appear here on Monday. And we've also learned this is going to be pretty interesting. You know, we, we know Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' attorney, was here all day. He says he may bring Stormy Daniels here on Monday as well. So we may have them all together uh, in this room, in this courthouse here on Monday for the first time. Uh, wow. Shimon Prokopas, appreciate the update. Let's go now to our CNN chief political analyst, Gloria Borger, who has some new information about what federal investigators actually seized earlier this week from Michael Cohen. So what have you learned, Gloria? That's right, Anderson. CNN has learned tonight that when the FBI raided Michael Cohn's office, his apartment and his hotel room, they seized audio recordings between Cohn and Keith Davidson. And you might remember Keith Davidson was Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal's first lawyer who negotiated their hush money. And as you know, he no longer represents either one of them. Now, the recordings could prove really valuable to the government's investigation of Cohn, who, of course, is under scrutiny for his role in trying to keep these alleged affairs secret before the presidential election. And the warrant for that search last week specifically mentioned these women. Now, Cohn, as you know, has admitted no wrongdoing. The president has denied any of these affairs. And I should also add that we do not know how many of these calls were recorded or what the conversation specifically contained. But I can guarantee you they're going to be of a great deal of interest to law enforcement. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about how it could be useful to, to investigators. I mean, obviously getting emails is one thing, but, but actual phone conversations, I mean, that's an extraordinary level of detail. Well, it is. It is an extraordinary level of detail. I mean, you know, they don't have to guess about who said what to whom when. And I mean, this is speculation, but let's say they were talking about, well, we got to get this done quickly because the election, you know, the election is approaching. 
How much money does she want? Why does she want this? Where is the money coming from? You know, these are all questions. Michael, uh, Michael Cohen has said that he paid this out of his personal accounts. Did they talk about how that would, how that would work? And we, you know, we should also tell you that, uh, Sarah Seidner, our colleague, spoke with, uh, a spokesman for Keith Davidson, uh, today. And he said he never consented absolutely never consented to any recordings and that he's willing to pursue his legal rights regarding these phone conversations. Because as you know, depending on which state you're in, uh, recording could be illegal. Uh, presumably he was in California and Cohn was in New York, but we really don't know. So just lastly, uh, what more are you learning about the president's call with Michael Cohen today? Because I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. That just doesn't seem like Me a good neither. idea. No, it does not seem like a good idea. The, the president saying anything to Michael Cohn isn't a good idea. Even when he said, ask Michael Cohn or Michael Cohn is my attorney, that turned out not to be a good idea, as we saw in court today. Uh, I think I was told the president called him. I have to assume that it was a pleasant call of commiseration. But our our sources were very it, it, just, you know, didn't want to discuss a conversation that the president had with Cohn. But we know, Anderson, and you know this, they have a longstanding relationship. Michael Cohn has worked for him since 2006. He is the ultimate loyalist to the president. The president knows him, had him to Mar-a-Lago a couple of weeks ago publicly. So uh, I would presume that there was sort of some level of how you're doing. Yeah. Also, I mean, just we should point out publicly, he is the ultimate loyalist. We have no idea what's going to happen if Michael Cohen is charged with crimes and exactly. if they try to get him to flip. I mean, we'll see how how, you know, how deep that loyalty goes. Well, and if you were to be cynical, you'd say, you know, that's why the president has taken him under his wings so closely. Mm-hmm. Lately. Fascinating. Thanks very much. More now on the notion that what unfolded this week could in the end do more damage to the president than anything special counsel Mueller is looking into. According to new reporting, the New York Times, that's precisely what the president's advisors have concluded. Political analyst uh, Maggie Haberman is with us. She is so as she is so often on the byline in her capacity as White House correspondent for the uh, New York Times. She joins us now by phone. So it, just talk a little bit about why the president's advisors seem are more concerned with the Cohen investigation, what's happening in, in New York state than they are about at this point, the special counsel's investigation. Sure. Uh, Anderson, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, as as. We know they have repeatedly said that, and Mueller, Mueller's initial uh, original charge is uh, possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. Um, they argue that so far that has shown nothing. We don't actually know that, and it's worth noting that a number of campaign officials have pleaded guilty, um, although primarily on, on charges related to lying to investigators. Um, in this instance, the main thing that is concerning uh, Trump's lawyers is they don't know what was taken. Um, and, and they're not certain they're going to know what was taken. Uh, they have not been able to discern exactly what files went away. And now I believe that Michael Cohen's files on a lot of issues, I mean, among them um, uh, this, this Karen McDougal uh, case, among them conversations with Keith Davidson, recordings, I think, but also possibly files, those are there. But in terms of things that relate to the president and Michael Cohen, the president's lawyers don't know what exists. And when you don't know what exists, uh, the world of possibilities is is pretty vast. It's also that this is a search warrant um, that was lengthy and that went into a lot of different areas. The Southern District of New York is looking at a bunch of things. Well, I mean, that's one of the to to the point you just made about they don't know what exists. That's what's so fascinating about this, because it's not just that they don't know what Michael Cohen had or had kept and was taken. 
they don't, they don't, they probably, I'm guessing, but it sounds like based on your reporting, his, the president's own lawyers don't know what the president has done with Michael Cohen over the last 10 or however many years, 12 years. So as we know, um, you know, as we reported earlier today, there was this phone call uh, between the president and Michael Cohen. Uh, my understanding is the president's uh, lawyers had, had urged him not to make that kind of a call. He made it anyway. Um, uh, you know, you never you don't we don't we don't know details of what was said. Um, but lawyers are always going to be concerned about that kind of a call. Um, both of them, both both Michael Cohen and the president, um, are not always forthcoming with the people who are working for them um, in terms of what is there, or at least that has been the, the concern among Trump's lawyers. Uh, and so right now you are kind of flying blind. I mean, they really don't exactly know what they're looking at, and they're not going to know until more information comes out from prosecutors. That's um, a scary proposition if you're a lawyer, even if it all turns out that there is nothing. The president, as Gloria correctly said, has denied any wrongdoing. Michael Cohen has admitted to no wrongdoing. Um, but not knowing what is there is is scary for an attorney. It's also hard to overstate just how far-reaching Cohen's involvement with the president is. I mean, he's been more than just a, a regular attorney. I mean, he at one point, you know, sent out a tweet with hashtag Ray Donovan. He's called himself the fix-it man. Uh, his friend David Schwartz has yep. called him the fixer. Uh, there's there's no telling what, what how deep he I mean what he has done. Right. I mean, that was an argument the prosecutors used in court today. To be clear, um, Michael Cohen has long identified himself as the president's personal lawyer. The president described him that way as well um, last year and then uh, again on Air Force One recently. Um, but prosecutors are arguing that there was very little lawyering involved here. And so, therefore, the files are, should be uh, more available. Um, Michael Cohen was very good at excuse me, um, shooting down threats real and perceived for the president. He was so good at it that he was able to sort of figure out what could be a problem at some point. Uh, that's what's a concern here. This is also a man who has said that he would take a, a bullet for, for his client. Um, I mean, a lot of people say that. Uh, and, and then, you know, obviously when they're facing severe legal jeopardy, uh, you know, it, it's a different situation entirely. It's certainly going to be interesting to see just how loyal Cohen actually is to the president and how loyal the president actually is to Cohen. Look, I, I mean, I, I, this is something that, that, that I thought a lot about today and talked to a bunch of people about. Um, you know, the president loves to talk about what a loyal person he is. In fact, loyalty is a pretty one-way street with him historically. Most people who have worked for him will privately say that. Some have said it publicly. Um, Sam Nunberg comes to mind among those who have said it publicly. Um, and in terms of Cohen's loyalty, he has been extremely loyal. Um, it's a lot of loyalty to ask somebody to give up their life for you. And so I understand he has said he would take a bullet for the guy, but I think that when push comes to shove, to your point earlier in the show, uh, we don't know whether there will be charges filed against him. We don't know what kind of pressure uh, prosecutors are going to apply, but we have to assume it's going to be pretty firm. Um, most people usually value their own life more than someone else's unless you're in the Secret Service. Also, it appears that the government has actually had access to his, uh, Michael Cohen's emails for some time. Yes, apparently they have had, um, secretly had access to a bunch of emails. I'm not entirely clear on how, um, but they are in possession of a, of a trove of materials. Um, you know, among the things that prosecutors asked about in this, or excuse me, that um, uh, investigators asked about in the search warrant, was specific communications between, they named Hope Hicks and Corey Lewandowski in particular, um, the, the uh, spokeswoman for the campaign at the time, then the comms director in the White House, um, and Corey Lewandowski, the original campaign manager, it's worth remembering that for a time before the president actually declared his candidacy, 
it was really just Michael Cohen, Sam Nunberg, Roger Stone, um, sort of on the outside, uh, Corey Lewandowski, and Hope Hicks, and that was about it. Yeah. So if they, they are clearly going back to the very beginning to look for stuff. It's just incredible. Meg Haberman, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Coming up next, our distinguished legal panel, uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz and Ambassador Norm Eisen. And later, we'll ask two former White House insiders if they have ever seen anything like what we have seen from this White House just this week alone. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Whether it's the president's uh, rage tweeting at James Comey and Andrew McCabe or the explosive new twist in the Michael Cohen story or especially some presidential actions that might have brought even more legal jeopardy for Cohen, it's a pretty good reason for talking to our next two guests. Norm Eisen, President uh, Obama's ethics advisor and former ambassador of the Czech Republic and his Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz is both the recent author of Trumped Up and a recent guest at the White House. Professor Dershowitz, this reporting that the president's advisors have concluded that what's happening in New York and the Cohen investigation actually is of greater and more imminent threat to the president than the Mueller investigation. Do you agree with that? Oh, there's no doubt about that. I said that a month ago. I think he's at very slight risk if they were to go after him on constitutionally protected grounds, for example, firing Comey or on other political grounds Mm -hmm. like collusion, which isn't a crime. His real vulnerability has always been what he did before being president, whether it be business dealings or alleged dealings with other women. So I do think that the investigation in the Southern District is far, far more dangerous. It also means he's not going to fire Mueller because that's not going to do him any good. He can't go around firing the U.S. attorney in the Southern District also. Well, also, Ambassador Eisen, um, I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying one of the things that Mueller has done is he's actually kind of uh, blockchained out the information. He sent out files to uh, to New York. And so even if his investigation was was shut down or his file seized, the information is already it's it's decentralized. It's in other areas for New York investigators to pursue. That's right, Anderson. This is not Bob Mueller's first rodeo. Uh, I've worked with him on cases and I've been on the other side of the table and uh, he's a tough and smart fair Uh, but a very tough adversary. So he has protected his investigation. I do agree with Alan that this is a great danger, but for the following reason. If Michael Cohen flips, he knows all the secrets. He knows all the dirt. They've got him, it appears, on strong evidence of possible criminal activity. If he flips on the president, this may open up a wide universe of illegal conduct. So it's uh, a new stage in the uh, unfolding uh, matter. And Professor Dershowitz, I think a lot of people don't realize that the president can pardon somebody uh, on a federal crime, but if on a state level, pardon doesn't doesn't matter. Oh, no, of course not. If the attorney general of New York were to file criminal charges, that could not be subject to a pardon. If the president does pardon, he will be acting within his constitutional authority, regardless of what his intent may be. But I doubt that he's going to go down 
that line. If you are Michael Cohen and you have you are a self-described fixer, Mr. Fix-It Man, as I always call himself, and mm-hmm. you for 10 years have been doing this and you claim that you uh, and his friends have been claiming on television that uh, there was so much for him to fix that he had wide latitude to operate mm-hmm. on his yeah. own. The president himself last week said, well, listen, I knew nothing about this payment to Stormy Daniels. Does that mean that there is no attorney-client privilege? Because oh, no. that's, what this, that's what it seems like the government is arguing. Yeah, but it's a false argument because uh, even if Cohen discussed the matter not with uh, President Trump but with other members of Trump's defense team or people who work with him, paralegals, all of those are covered by the lawyer-client privilege if he was performing a legal function. That's the key issue. Now, being a fixer sounds like it's non-legal, but if what you're doing is making a deal for the president... Your discussions with the president are covered, but your discussions with people who are outside, who you're making the deal with, are not covered. My point, though, is that these decisions shouldn't be made what to read and what not to read by prosecutors, FBI agents, even if they call themselves a taint team. It should be made by a judge who's objective and neutral and won't leak. Ambassador Eisen, the fact that the president and Michael Cohen spoke on the phone today, do you think it's a good idea for the president to be communicating directly with Michael Cohen at this stage? No, Anderson. One of the things I learned when I worked for Alan Dershowitz is you don't let your criminal uh, clients talk to the other members of the possible uh, conspiracy or criminal activity. When my client would come to court for a pretrial hearing, I'd put an associate next to him to make sure the other defendants didn't talk to him. And that's where Alan is wrong. This is not just about past conduct. The president has dragged it into the present by repeatedly talking to Cohen. This isn't the first conversation, but doing it today when he offered a pardon to somebody else, sending a signal that he's prepared to use pardons, it's very troubling. And Anderson, I have to disagree with my old professor and my old friend on another count. This is part of a pattern of uh, what appears to be raises serious question of obstruction of justice. The Comey firing, the witness uh, contacts uh, before and after that. Now talking to Cohen today on the day when they're having this hearing in New York, it doesn't look right. And the president is exposing himself deeper and deeper with every one of these acts. My former student just proves my point. He's prepared to criminalize anything that Trump does, making a call to uh, a lawyer. The call might have just been, hey, Michael, you know, uh, I, I'm on your side. I'm with you. You've done so much for me over the years. Be strong. We, we don't know anything beyond that. And the idea that we're creating an obstruction of justice out of this is what worries every civil libertarian. Because if you give a smart lawyer like Norm Eisen material like this, he can weave something, create something that the law should not be used to do. Uh, Ambassador Eisen, the judge today took issue with the fact that Michael Cohen wasn't in court, suggested uh, to his attorney that he be there for the 4 mm-hmm. p.m. hearing. I just want to play what Michael Cohen was doing right around 4 o'clock. And, and let me just say, it, it wasn't arriving at the courthouse. Take a look. So he's sitting outside his hotel, gripping and grinning with a group of guys smoking cigars for the cameras. Is that smart? Um, Anderson, I don't know what's happened to our society that he's not wearing a necktie. It's not the close of business yet on Friday. In addition to that, no, what you're seeing is a contempt for the process. Just like Alan Dershowitz would have never allowed me to let one of our clients call another client Uh, When there's a criminal investigation, call another individual, never. He would have had 
Michael Cohen there in a sober blue suit with a necktie in the courtroom. These people evince both in their legal conduct and in their demeanor contempt for the law. It looks like a scene out of billions. He should not be there. Yeah, Yeah. it really looks like a scene on television. Or like like, like a a B-level Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just... You see, that's another problem. When Comey goes around calling the president of the United States a mob leader, it again proves my point. He's using the term mob leader in such a metaphorical way. Professor Dershowitz, uh, Ambassador Eisen, thank you. Thanks, Anderson. Thank you. Coming out from the White House press briefing room and from the president's Twitter finger, it's an all-out war on former uh, FBI Director James Comey. or the latest from the White House next. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. The president of the United States calls the former uh, director of the FBI a slime ball. The former director says he doesn't know whether the president was, quote, with prostitutes peeing on each other. And yes, this is real life and this is verbal war, an all-out verbal war on James Comey by the president and the White House. Our Jim Acosta joins us now. I mean, Jim, it's certainly a full court press from the White House on, on this book right now. Uh, it really is, Anderson. We saw that all day long today, not only with the president's tweets, but obviously with what uh, Sarah Sanders said during the briefing earlier today. Uh, she essentially uh, ripped into uh, the former FBI director, James Comey, for a good uh, 30 or 40 minutes. And the bulk of the questions during the briefing today w- was about that. Now, we do understand from our sources, my colleague Gloria Borger has talked to folks. I've talked to folks over here and we're all getting essentially the same message. And that is that the president is just deeply, deeply upset about these allegations uh, in the Comey book. And it, it sort of fits into the same uh, box, uh, if you will, that uh, that they really feel uh, Robert Mueller is is driving at, that Rod Rosenstein uh, is is driving at, that this is really less about the Russia investigation. It's less about Russia collusion uh, with the Trump campaign. And it's more about uh, trying to unearth as many embarrassing anecdotes as you can about the president. Now, I, I asked uh, Sarah during the briefing, and if you saw this earlier today, uh, you know, Sarah Sanders said right before the 2016 election, November 3rd, 2016, she said, if you're attacking FBI agents, you're losing uh, and she essentially defended that comment by saying, well, this this has to do with uh, Jim Comey. Uh, they feel that he's a liar and a leaker. But Anderson, uh, at the same time, we should point out on the very same day that they're accusing Jim Comey of being a liar and a leaker, the president issued a full pardon to Scooter Libby, the, pres- uh, the vice president's uh, former chief of staff during the Bush administration, Dick Cheney's former chief of staff. Uh, of course, Scooter Libby uh, was convicted of perjury, of lying to federal investigators about the leaking of the identity of a, of a former CIA agent, Valerie Plame, uh, when there was all that discussion about weapons of mass destruction during uh, that run-up to the Iraq war. And obviously that, that's a level of hypocrisy that a lot of Americans are going to have a problem with. Uh, but no question about it. This was unrelenting all day long. But, but the other thing is, I mean, it's not like this book is the only challenge the White House is trying to deal with right now. I mean, it, there's far more serious things, frankly, the Cohen investigation, the Mueller investigation, the possibility of military action in Syria. That's right. And, and just to uh, 
pull those apart one by one. Obviously, they feel that the, the raid on Michael Cohen's uh, office, uh, his hotel room and so on, uh, they feel that that, again, is sort of, a, you know, dumpster diving for an indictment. They feel that that is another attempt by the Justice Department to try to embarrass the president. Uh, it, it certainly has gotten under the president's skin. You can see that in the tweets and uh, things that have been said all week long. The Mueller investigation, obviously, they, they are starting to feel like that is that goes into the same category. I will tell you, Anderson, talking to sources today and, and all week long, uh, there is some pushback that this is all the president is obsessed with. And we do know that the president has been meeting with military and, and national security advisors all day long and all week long. And I just got finished talking with a source familiar with a lot of these conversations behind the scenes who insists that the president has been deeply focused on these military options for striking Syria in response to the, the suspected chemical weapons attack. And, of course, we heard Sarah Sanders say in the briefing uh, earlier today, really just sort of brushing off uh, this ridiculous claim from the Russians that the British were somehow behind uh, what happened in Syria. Uh, the, the U.S. is pretty firmly with France and the U.K. at this point that uh, obviously Bashar al-Assad's forces were behind that attack. Yeah. Anderson? Jim Acosta, thanks very much. From the White yeah. House, joining me tonight with a lot of ground to cover, CNN senior political commentator David Axelrod and CNN senior political analyst David Gergen. David Axelrod, you compared this moment we're into the waning days of Watergate. I'm not sure Nixon ever publicly referred to his former FBI director as a slime ball. Uh, I haven't listened to all the tapes and to the upper echelons of the FBI as a den of thieves and lowlifes. Yeah, well, look, I think that um, this is very, very serious. Clearly, uh, just generally as a rule, when the guy who is publicly identified as your fixer is now under criminal investigation and all of his records and tapes have been seized, that's a very bad day. And so clearly he's got something to worry about. I think the thing that we sort of are glossing over here is that as all these things are going on, the president of the United States is contemplating launching a major attack on uh, on another country. Uh, and and, you know, so you have to wonder about how all of this is going down. Uh, David's been in White House. I've been in White House. Neither of us experienced anything quite like this, uh, where you don't know what's going to happen moment to moment. Uh, in terms of all of these legal actions. And you don't know what the principal is going to do because the president of the United States could fire someone at any given moment, tweet something at any given moment. And my strong suspicion is that the people around him in the White House don't have a clue about any of it. Well, that's what's so interesting, David Gergen. I mean, yeah, the, the people around the president don't know what the president has done or hasn't done or what he said to other people. Uh, nobody seems to know exactly what Michael Cohen has perhaps done. Um, and there's got to be concern about people around the president in the White House not wanting to get too enmeshed in this because they don't want to end up in the criminal investigation. There are, there are similarities to Watergate in that regard. And that is the taping system was only known to two or three people in Richard Nixon's White House. And all the rest of us were completely in the dark. And we had no idea what was being said. You never and knew that there was a taping system going No, it was, a, it, was a, it was a big bombshell when it came out. And, you know, uh, half the staff thought this is it. It's done for. And half, half of us thought this will exonerate him. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out if you were a cynic, you were right. Um, but, hmm. but nonetheless, I, I, I must say, I think David Axelrod is absolutely right about it. When you have this much uncertainty, it's hard to govern. And, and David, I mean, the, the White House seems to be firing from every angle at James Comey right now. The president tweeting Kellyanne Conway is making the media around Sarah Sanders, issuing barbs from the podium, all men of surrogates, obviously on cable news. Do you think that's a wise strategy? I mean, you know, I guess some would argue, David, David Axelrod, that it's giving Comey's book more oxygen, um, 
although it does fit the narrative that the president has been trying to do for a long time, which is erode confidence in the FBI, erode confidence in the Department of Justice, so that whatever Mueller comes up with, um, he can just say, well, look, this is this tainted organization. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. I I have respect for Jim Comey as a public servant. He's devoted his life to this country. Uh, I think he served the country with integrity. Uh, but he also tends to see himself as the central character in an ongoing morality play, uh, as the, the protagonist. And, uh, you know, I don't think, I understand he's doing great work for his book. He's going to sell a lot of books here. He's going to get a lot of attention. He's venting a lot of his outrage, uh, and he's entitled to do that. Uh, but he's not helping, uh, the process here at all. I think by injecting himself here as he's injecting himself, and by, by the way, by making references to the president's hands and his hair and all of that. Uh, I think he just adds to the circus. And we have enough circus right now. What we need is sobriety. Hmm. David Gergen, you agree with that? Uh, I, 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 David Axelrod is usually right on this. I, I have some disagreement. I, I, I think that he, he, he's, Comey is a professional and a gentleman. And I think he's extraordinarily offended by what he's seeing. And I think the argument that what we're dealing with is a mob rule it's taking the conversation to a different level and a different place. Uh, and I do think, yes, he sometimes grandstands too much, and that's been Trump's criticism, among others. Um, but I do think we also have to, somebody here has got to call it for what it is and try to assert what it is we're looking at. And somebody and who's actually trying to been in the room, yes. been in the room with him, yes. seen it from the inside. It's one thing, where, you know, you have cable news pundits. Saying this night after right, night. and then and who? Yeah, but, yeah. First, I'm, I'm sorry, David. But, I don't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. But uh, look, David, uh, I, I have no, he 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 provides important uh, observations. He provided them to a uh, congressional committee. Uh, but there is an ongoing investigation. There's a probe going on. This is obviously a very fraught time uh, in which uh, our whole uh, justice system is on uh, on uh, tinder hooks here because of the. Uh, campaign that's being waged against it by uh, the president and his allies. And I think that uh, Comey unwittingly abets that uh, by leaping in here now. He could have written this and released this book at any time. This was dictated by a publisher who wanted to maximize sales, not by a public servant who wants to make sure that this investigation ends in the right way. And so, uh, you know, I don't I have I'm not questioning his uh, his core here, but I am questioning his timing. Mm. David Axelrod, David Gergen, thanks. Well, we have more breaking news tonight about former FBI director Andrew McCabe, who was fired right before his planned retirement. Tonight, CNN has learned that McCabe is considering filing civil lawsuits against the president and senior administration officials. His counsel says they have been actively considering this for some time and the lawsuits would allege wrongful termination, defamation and constitutional violations. In a statement, the council says, quote, this is just the beginning. Coming up, Michael Cohen, The Fixer. Tonight, CNN is learning new details about a $1.6 million payment plan to a former Playboy model who allegedly had an affair with a Republican fundraiser, got pregnant, and had an abortion. I'll tell you Michael Cohen's involvement, the latest, next. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
Uh, we've just learned the president is expected to address the nation tonight about Syria. He will, of course, bring you uh, that when it happens. I want to go to uh, Jim Acosta, who's standing by at the White House. Jim, yep. what have you learned? Yeah, Anderson, just some some uh, some quick details on this. We do expect the president to speak momentarily on the decision that has apparently been made about retaliating against the Syrians uh, for that suspected chemical weapons attack. Uh, we keep saying suspected chemical weapons attack, but we uh, we do uh, we do now believe that the U.S. government has made this conclusion along with its partners, uh, the U.K. and France, uh, that Bashar al-Assad's forces were behind that chemical weapons attack uh, that, of course, uh, started this conversation. I talked to a senior administration official earlier today who said, and I think others here at CNN have been reporting this, uh, that the president had been pushing for some tougher uh, responses, some tougher actions uh, to take against the Syrians all week long. Uh, that conversation continued into today. The president was meeting with his top military and national security advisors. And according to a source I, I talked to earlier today, uh, there was some resolution on that discussion. There was some, some back and forth over that subject. Uh, and according to uh, some of my uh, colleagues here at the White House, uh, Jeff Zeleny, Kevin Liptak, uh, and others, uh, the president has apparently made the decision uh, to strike at Syria at some point. Uh, and uh, apparently uh, the president is going to be speaking uh, any moment now. Of course, yeah. if the president is speaking, Anderson, uh, that strike may have already happened. Jim, but but uh, we're waiting to find the, uh, the latest yeah, details. Jim, if you, if you can stand by, seen as Barbara yep. Starr is at the Pentagon for us right now. Barbara, what are you learning? Anderson, right now, no official word from the Pentagon, but we certainly do know what the parameters are of this issue right now. The question at hand, once the president makes the decision to strike, is what will the target list be? How robust a target list will they go after? Will it simply be airfields, helicopters? Will they go after the chemical stocks? Those are very difficult to bomb. You risk civilian casualties. Or will they go further? Will they go after Bashar al-Assad's command and control and intelligence structure that governs, that oversees his chemical core? That is one of the key issues uh, right now. Yeah. The big issue that Secretary Mattis has been worried about for the last several days is the reaction from the Russians who are heavily uh, committed inside Syria. They do not want to strike Russian targets. They want to make it clear to Moscow tonight they are not going after Russian personnel. But what they don't know is what the Russian and, in fact, the Iranian reaction will be if there is a strike by the U.S. and the allies. How will the Russians react? Secretary Mattis has been extremely concerned about escalation of this crisis. And that, we do know, has governed much of his thinking about this, Anderson. Uh, yeah, Barbara, that's one of the things that, that CNN has been reporting today, that, that General Mattis and others uh, were raising concerns about the scope of any possible retaliation. Well, that's right, because no matter what, you know, just for purposes of discussion, let's say there are a series of airstrikes. When they are over, Bashar al-Assad is still going to be in power. The Russians are still going to be inside Syria. Iranian proxies are still going to be inside Syria. It's not fundamentally going to change the military balance on the ground. It's not going to push Bashar al-Assad out of power. The point that Secretary Mattis, we believe, has been making behind closed doors is this is a crisis that still very much requires an international diplomatic solution to get Assad out of power. And it is the Russians that at the core 
play the key role in making that happen. Right now, there is a very adamant view uh, at the Defense Department, and I think in the intelligence agencies, it's fair to say that the Russians want Assad in power. They like having him there. It gives them free reign inside Syria. It gives them valuable territory. It gives them a port on the Mediterranean that is important to the Russians for trade and commerce uh, and their own uh, perception of their security, if you will. So they're very happy to have Assad there, regardless of the atrocities he inflicts on his own people. How do you incentivize the Russians to get Assad out? Bombs, missiles are not going to do it. But there's very much a feeling after last week's uh, what appears by all accounts to be a terrible chemical attack against men, women and children. The international community cannot leave it unanswered and that the Russians are complicit. They they are Assad sponsors. They had yeah. to have known what he was up to. Uh, I want to also bring in our chief uh, national security correspondent, Jim Shudo, who's, uh, who's joining us uh, as well as we uh, are waiting President Trump to address the nation tonight uh, on Syria. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, unclear exactly what sort of response uh, might, be, uh, might be happening. The debate this week has been not whether to attack in response for this chemical weapons attack or what is believed to be a chemical weapons attack, but but how much to respond, right? Uh, the president wanting a sustained attack, that position apparently supported by his new national security advisor, John Bolton, as well as Nikki Haley, uh, the U.N. ambassador who left the White House just a couple of hours ago after a, a meeting of the National Security Council, and Mattis, not so much on the other side, but counseling caution. Uh, as Barbara noted there, Syria does not just involve Syrian forces today. It involves Russian forces, Iranian forces, and a danger that Mattis has expressed to the president of escalation, uh, the possibility of killing Russian forces on the ground there, which, which then could bring escalation. That, that's a risk that did not exist a couple of years ago in Syria, but does exist today. That debate playing out in the administration, the question is, how far do they go? Uh, did the president listen to that counsel? Is this strike tempered by that concern about escalation uh, and the risk of conflict with the uh, Russian or Iranian forces? Uh, that's the question here. But, but, but the bigger picture here as well, Anderson, is this. Whatever happens tonight, does it change the fundamental situation on the ground there? Uh, Russia, Syria, uh, Iran, the U.S. has made very clear to them, not just in the last year, but over the last several years, that it does not want a sustained military involvement in this con conflict. This is primarily about message sending, about the use of chemical weapons, an important message to send, and one that the U.S., this administration, shares with its European allies, that it, it must be made clear that there are costs to using these horrible weapons on the ground there, and they want to express that. Yeah. Is it going to chase Russia out of their new seaport in the eastern Mediterranean? No. Is it going to change Russia's support for the Assad regime? No. Is it going to change, change Iranian support? No. And also Iran's risk and danger that opposes to Israel as, as a result of its yeah. position on the ground in Syria? No. Uh, those things will not change uh, regardless of what kind of attack you see tonight. Uh, Jim, I also want to bring in CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, who is in uh, northern Syria, uh, Syria for us. Uh, tonight. Uh, Nick, explain uh, where, where you are, uh, what you are hearing around you. 
Absolute silence, dead of night here, Anderson, just coming up about four o'clock in the morning. I'm in northern Syria. That is the area held by the Syrian Kurds, who were backed by the United States to fight ISIS. But it's the U.S. continued presence here, about 2,000 troops that are now very much in the spotlight. If we do indeed see some kind of military action accompany uh, Donald Trump speak uh, speak in the coming uh, minutes ahead. Now, we just to remind you here how volatile the situation already is in February itself. Uh, a group of Syrian regime militia moved towards the territory where I'm standing, held by Syrian Kurds. It seems to try and take an oil field off those Syrian Kurds. Now, in their midst, and some say perhaps coordinating that move, were Russian mercenaries from supposedly the Wagner uh, private mercenary group, it's been alleged. They ended up firing upon a U.S. position that was known to exist here, uh, and that led the U.S. Special Forces, who I was with at the time, to launch a ferocious counterattack using C-130 gunships, remarkable amount of firepower brought in over a sustained period of time. That killed dozens, potentially, uh, of Russian mercenaries, 200, in fact, if you listen to Mike Pompeo's recent testimony he gave just a couple of days ago on the Hill. Throughout that firefight, the deconfliction line between the U.S., and the Russians and the Syrian Kurds was all open. They were talking to each other, we were told. Yet still, the fact that there were Russian mercenaries in the mix there was not declared. So there's a lot of lack of transparency on the battlefield here. If we do start seeing uh, things happening tonight, which will have many concerns, I have to point out a lot of the reporting we've heard too suggests a lot of measures taken by the U.S. to assure the Russians they are not the target of this. As Jim was pointing out, you know, six years of covering this, the one thing you can certainly say about the U.S. policy under Obama and Trump is they don't want to own this conflict. They don't want to try and change it. We got a whiff from Rex Tillerson when he was Secretary of State that possibly he had a longer-term vision that involved Assad leaving power, Iran's influence being checked, etc., etc. He's out, and we haven't heard a whiff of that longer strategy since then. It remains to be seen what John Bolton and Mike Pompeo think as they take up their respective seats. But it's pretty clear much of this is going to be about sending the message about chemical weapons not being acceptable uh, in the modern world. Nikki Haley, when she spoke, was quite clear that 50 separate instances have been counted by the United States of chemical weapons used by the regime. So in their mind, this is sort of a long Jew uh, reckoning. Anderson? Nick, just in terms of, of Russian forces, you talked about Russian mercenaries. Um, are there regular army, regular military Russian forces uh, 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 on the ground there? If so, where? And also just talk, if you can, about Iranian forces and, and their role. Yeah, there are absolutely uh, regular Russian forces. No clarity as to their usual bases, but there are many around Damascus. The Hamim airfield obviously will have some ground support too. They've been spotted in various front lines assisting uh, the Syrian regime. You've got to remember over the last six years, what used to be known as the Syrian Arab army and still is, has been whittled away down. Uh, extraordinary losses they've suffered to the point where back when we had the first instance of potential action of chemical weapons, there were concerns, frankly, that actually a heavy strike could, frankly, have taken out much of the Syrian military and let the rebels take hold of key cities. They've since managed to rebuild themselves, though, through Iranian militia, through the Iranian Republican Guard coming in and providing kind of command and control or advise and assist missions here. They were then backed up by the Russian forces turning up too. There have been endless reports and sightings of Afghan mercenaries even drafted in to bolster up their numbers as well. Uh, the Iranians are, can be seen, of course, around Damascus, other areas too here. 
You've got to think about the moment we are in in this particular war where the regime has begun over the last years to pretty much define the borders it certainly wants in the short to medium term to maintain here. That's slowed down some elements of the conflict. The bombing against civilians has still continued to be ghastly as Assad uh, wishes to kick the rebels out of certain areas. But there was a slowing in territorial change of hands. It's unclear what tonight may do to that. Yeah, uh, Nick Payton Walsh uh, joining us as well as CNN a military and diplomatic analyst, General uh, John Kirby. Uh, Admiral Kirby, just talk, about, if you can, about the considerations uh, that undertaken just over the last, well, really since uh, since this uh, this apparent chemical attack uh, by the White House, by the military, all the different uh, sort of angles that they have to analyze about yep. the ripple effects of any kind of strike. Yeah. So the way I've been putting it all week is uh, three things, targets, timing and teamwork. So on targets, and you've already kind of heard from uh, our reporters in the last few minutes, targets are going to be a real consideration. It's going to be really interesting if they do strike. Uh, what are they hitting and what message does it send about what they're hitting and how are they preventing or trying to to scope down any possible escalation with the Russians or with the Iranians here? I mean, you got to remember, the goal here is to bloody Assad's nose for his use of chemical weapons and and not just send a message, but deter any future use uh, of chemical weapons. So you want to hit something that's sort of proportional and appropriate to that goal, but not so much and not so heavy that you really risk ramping it up with the Russians. And I think that's the tension that we've been hearing reported between the Pentagon and the White House, particularly the president, over trying to be more uh, more aggressive. Timing is also going to be key here that the president is going to be speaking to us in a couple minutes. Probably means, in my mind, that he's already made not only made his decision, but that the things you know could actually already be happening. That might be why he's coming out to, to talk about what, what, what has occurred or what is occurring rather than just, hey, I've made a decision. So we'll see what, what he has to say. But timing was also a bit thrown off by the fact that they telegraphed this thing a few days ago and sort of lost any element uh, of real surprise there. And then teamwork, you know, uh, if they strike, we need to look and see who else participated in it. It'll be really interesting. We've been reporting all week that the Brits and the French French might be involved in this. They do have assets uh, in the region capable of standoff missile use, cruise missile use, both from the air and from the sea, the Brits and the French. Uh, so we'll see if they participated in what that looked like. Admiral Kirby, I mean, if there is a concern about, uh, you know, engaging directly with Russian forces, uh, Iranian forces. Is there communication in, in, in the event there is a strike between the U.S. and Russian forces on, on or, you know, Russian leadership? That is a great question, Anderson. As you remember, last year, we found out after the fact that the Russians uh, had been informed, but not too far in advance, you know, because we wanted, we wanted to make sure that uh, that they uh, knew that it was happening while, you know, just before and were able to make sure that they, their personnel were out of the way and safe. I don't know. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've had some press reports that uh, Chairman Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has been in contact with his counterpart, his Russian counterpart. That might be a little bit of that coordination. We don't know. So it'll be really interesting to see how much, if any, of a heads up that they gave uh, to the Russians before this. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. 
Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.